What are the Miami-Dade mayor's budget priorities? What are the Miami mayor's ethics issues? And will anyone anywhere finally step in to save Haiti from violent gang rule? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll talk with Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava about her new record budget. She calls it a future-ready blueprint for tackling local crises like housing affordability. We'll also examine the lucrative moonlighting of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who is no longer a presidential candidate, but is still under investigation. And we'll ask why it's so hard for the U.S. and international community to confront the gangs that are murdering Haitians. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. Next week, the Miami-Dade Board of County Commissioners will hold a public hearing on Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava's proposed 2024 budget. It's an $11.7 billion blueprint that's a record amount for Miami-Dade, and it's aimed at a lot of the crises the county is experiencing these days, from housing affordability and public transit to climate change resiliency and recycling. It's also a budget proposal for an upcoming election year, or in Mayor Levine Cava's case, a re-election year. She's a Democrat, and Republicans are eager to build on their momentum in Miami-Dade and take back the mayor's office. But for now, the bigger issue is the budget and the fact that Miami-Dade is taking in so much more revenue these days that the mayor is proposing a 1% cut in the county's property tax rate. I spoke this morning with Mayor Levine Cava about what she sees as the budget's more urgent priorities and what lies ahead politically next year. Mayor Levine Cava, welcome to the South Florida Roundup, and thank you very much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Mayor, when you unveiled your budget last month, you called it, quote, smart, compassionate, and future ready. Future ready isn't exactly what people usually associate with Miami-Dade County, especially when you look at issues like our lack of affordable housing and public transit or our recycling dysfunction. What are the most important ways you feel your record $11.7 billion budget makes us more future ready? Thank you for that great question. And I am definitely a person who looks into the future. And I was elected to not just be focused on a year at a time. The budget is a year at a time, but our needs are really far into the future. And we are facing some of those big challenges you just mentioned. What's great about this particular budget is that we're making extraordinary investments in infrastructure. We've been so fortunate that the federal government has created the pathway through the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We've brought down almost a billion dollars in federal and state grants covering everything from transit to septic to sewer, uh, resilience grants, other other transportation infrastructure. And, uh, you know, using uh, tr trash as an example, the waste energy plant was 40 years old. Using the transit system, those elevators and escalators have been there since the inception of the metro rail system and uh, definitely we're on life support so it's really critical that we uh, step up and not just for the short term and put pothole filling in the budget but really look at longer term needs 
The fact that Miami-Dade County is taking on or taking in, I should say, record revenue right now gives you unprecedented resources to address those local crises like affordable housing. I mean, the the median single family home price here right now is more than 10 times the median household income. And it's hard for me to think of anything more urgent to address than that. How will your budget confront it? So last year, we announced an affordability crisis on housing. And clearly that problem persists. So in addition to the regular dollars, which are about a half a billion for housing, last year we committed 83 million additional using some of those one-time revenues. And the programs in the HOMES plan, which is an acronym, H-O-M-E-S, for uh, several different programs, those carry forward in the range of things we're doing. We're renovating housing that otherwise would be demolished and rebuilt at a higher uh, price point and making them out of reach. We are subsidizing rent uh, for for those who can't afford the increased prices. We're providing homeowners a subsidy to take care of increased insurance or other homeowners costs. We have a, a special condo assessment loan program to help people whose buildings have to make those repairs now that they're facing these recertifications And they do not have that kind of saving. We don't want them to be displaced or uh, for the building to be demolished if it can be repaired. So we have up to $50,000 loans over 30 years, zero interest. Those are just a few of the things we're doing on the the housing front and uh, rental assistance. We've prevented 25,000 households from eviction and are providing legal support, counseling support, relocation assistance, everything we possibly can to deal with this ongoing crisis. Now, we could argue the second most important crisis to address in Miami-Dade is transit, if only because that low-income crisis I noted earlier is due in no small part to a lack of public transportation access for workers to get to good jobs. We hear a lot about extending the metro mover across Biscayne Bay to Miami Beach, for example. But what, to your mind, are the most important ways your budget improves Miami-Dade transit? It is definitely the case that when you combine housing and transportation, we are the least affordable place in the country. So, uh, we definitely know that uh, we we need to cut back on those costs as well. And we see people are moving into those places along transit corridors. So first of all, we need to have a reliable, uh, predictable uh, transit system that gets people where they want to go. And the Better Bus Network has rolled out first phase, second phase in November to make sure that those routes that are most needed, uh, most utilized, come with greater frequency, and that is going to get more people where they need to go and to opportunities. The uh, bus ridership, or excuse me, transit ridership is up to pre-pandemic levels, which is unusual for a metropolitan area. And we definitely see people uh, riding the bus and the the rail and the mover. So uh, the Better Bus Network is hiring more drivers and anyone listening who's interested in becoming a, a, a bus operator, we need you. We have signing bonuses and, and other great benefits. Also, we have added, of course, the South Dade Transit Way, which will have a state-of-the-art bus rapid transit system operational uh, in the next year and proceeding with other corridors. The, the express bus lanes on 836 
are connected to the Dolphin Mall, the Dolphin Park and Ride, which has a major transit-oriented development underway, and a new facility out past FIU uh, that also has an express bus service, so more people can ride in comfort uh, and pass bypass all that terrible traffic on 836. Now, we're at the height of our hurricane season right now and the destruction we just watched Hurricane Adalia visit on Florida's Gulf Coast this week reminded us how devastating global warming has made storm surge, for example. Last week yes. on the show, we discussed new ideas that the county and the Army Corps of Engineers are coming up with to protect Miami-Dade's coastline. Uh, how does your budget support that? Well, Tim, that is really our existential challenge. How do we deal with climate change, rising seas? And this was an extraordinary turnaround by the Army Corps. The first plan was build big uh, walls in the middle of the bay, obviously terribly detrimental to our quality of life, our beauty, our tourism. Yeah, not, not an so aesthetic idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so we were so happy that they agreed to reset, which is unprecedented. And we spent the year together with additional community convenings and listening sessions with the cities, as well as the public. And the new plan will incorporate uh, nature-based solutions, barrier islands, building up of the sea, uh, the berms, mangroves, and so on, as well as a few features like uh, gates, sea gates at some of the uh, major uh, outlets to the sea, but a very much more favorable approach and now it's called go, technically it's a go uh, to proceed to mm -hmm. do the necessary study. So it will be a multi-year process, but as well, they've agreed to do interim steps. So we'll be able to approach the federal government for uh, monies for interim steps as we proceed uh, and not wait till the final end of the planning right. and major ticket but, check. But, but could it really take a decade before we finally see this come to, you know, practical concrete fruition? Well, like I say, it will be in phases. So yeah. I, I don't know the exact timeline yet, but the funding for these kinds of projects are every two years in Congress. We have to get into what's called the word S cycle. Uh, so it will be probably multiple asks. And uh, yes, we'll have to... A pony up here locally for a match as well. And we haven't yet programmed it because it's not, I mean, we do have some money for planning and the budget, but the actual construction and so on, that will be in future years. Now, the other big environmental challenge we've got here is waste management, obviously. Miami-Dade County is running out of places to put its garbage. A, a fire this year knocked out our most important garbage incinerator, uh, you know, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation here. And our residents just aren't into recycling, it seems. Remind us how you hope to change that messy dynamic in the coming year. You know, every challenge has an opportunity. So when the fish were dying in the bay, which they did not this summer, just notice we've made changes and hope that's making a difference. But when those mm -hmm. fish died, everyone got religion and recognized the importance of protecting the bay. So now uh, we lost half of our waste disposal capacity. And uh, I think it's generally known that we have to do something different. We just can't keep building up the landfills or shipping our garbage out of state. Uh, and, and there are a world of solutions. So the plan we put forward is really a broader strategy that includes a zero waste approach. We need to stop uh, purchasing disposable plastics. We need to compost in our homes. We need to get smart about recycling, recycle right. 
we are going to be launching an improved outreach campaign. We're bringing on a new team for the marketing and also sustainability strategies. We have a zero waste coordinator on our staff now. So all of these things together will allow us to uh, get where we need to go uh, and, and have the time to develop thoughtfully a complete waste campus that could include anaerobic digestion, which is definitely the best uh, solution, better than waste energy. Uh, I, think, I think you'll have to. Yeah. I think you'll have to explain that to the layperson out there listening. <laughs> digestion. Uh, it sounds well, like something you take a pill for, but to, 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 uh, what what exactly? Yeah. Well, my understanding is that it does um, produce energy, but it does it without adding smoke into the atmosphere. Okay. So it it's a an energy provider that is good because it's a a recycled use of the garbage but it doesn't have a, uh, the effect of people's concerns about polluting the, the atmosphere. Now, will county commissioners approve your proposed $36 a year waste management fee increase for Miami-Dade households? I mean, some seem cool to the idea. Yes, people don't want to raise fees if they don't have to because people are struggling in the community. The cost of living so high and everything going up and so on. So if they can avoid it, they'd like to. We're really saying there's a hard choice here. If we don't bring in what is really a small portion of the increased cost uh, through this fee, which is about 75 cents per week here, we're talking, uh, you know, not even a cup of coffee every week, right. uh, if you will, that we are going to have to reduce service. So commissioners are looking to see if there are other alternatives. We are very hopeful that they will uh, take that that choice and recognize that cutting service to one pickup a week or, or other reductions like not being able to add the illegal dumping team that we've proposed, that these are costs that they do not want to have to bear for, for the community. Well, well, talking about reductions and increases, et cetera, a lot's been made in recent weeks, not so much about what your budget spends, but what you propose to give back, meaning a 1% cut in the Miami-Dade property tax rate. That's, of course, welcome relief to many, but but could the cut have been even higher given how much more homeowners here are having to pay for things like property insurance, et cetera? Yeah. So this tax uh, cut of 1% in, in countywide is on top of last year's 1% cut. So in my administration, which had not happened for over 10 years, I'm proposing to cut taxes twice. And this is the lowest overall millage rate since 1982. So these are definitely answers that are speaking to the needs of the community and the fact that the growth of the economy and the newcomers and the increased uh, property roles need to be shared. We need to share with the, the public because they are struggling, as you say. So uh, we, we are doing that, but we're also having to face some really unprecedented costs. The state legislature requires us to build back some retirement benefits that they had chosen to take away. And this is all at local expense. That right. is quite a hit on us. We have to share uh, a cost of living, a modest one of 3%, because like everybody's expenses are going up. Uh, so for our employees and our contractors and our nonprofits, so a 3% is, is proposed. And we no, I, are also addressing the highest needs. So we right. are putting money to those who least can afford to pay their uh, bills. So we're targeting. 
Along those lines, though, the, the county, I, we need to mention the county lost $16 million in revenue for the 2024 budget because your administration failed to renew a gas tax in time. You, you sort of tongue-in-cheek called it a, quote, gas tax holiday for Miami-Dade residents. Critics call it a, a bureaucratic lapse. What measures are you taking to avoid a repeat of something like that in the future? So this is a 30-year uh, agreement between the state and the county that was not provided notice to the county and there were no electronic records and it was renewed every year without any fanfare. So naturally it was a surprise to all of us. That to be said, it does turn into an advantage for our residents who are saving a significant amount of money. And so we definitely wanted to, sh to share that this is, this is something that they, they can benefit from. Now, Mayor, I have to end here on a political note that the county's public safety budget grows about 17 percent in your budget. Police, firefighters, jails and Democrats in Florida. Are are they feeling the heat at all from Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republicans who are making crime and insecurity a big issue for next year's election cycle and election cycle you're you're taking part in? Well, I have to tell you that I'm doing what's right for this community. I'm not focused on uh politics this is all about making sure that we have the safest community which we do people are flocking here because they feel safe we're not only investing in solving crimes which we do because of the trust in our neighborhoods people talk to the police about what they know and see but we're preventing crime our peace and prosperity plan is putting young people who are heading down the wrong track uh, putting them uh, to to work with real salaries we have youth mentoring programs. Uh, we have additional cameras and high crime spots in partnership with businesses. Just a host of things that we're doing. As far as fire uh, fighting and police as well, we have increased calls. We have increased population, increased demand on those services. And as far as corrections goes, we are uh, about to get the really good news that we have made such progress that our monitors are telling us we are in compliance with uh, court mandates, and uh, we did need to, to put some money into our understaffed and under-resourced uh, uh, correction system, including reentry programs and things that make sure people do not recidivate. Well, Mayor Levine Kava, thanks very much again for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Tim. That was my conversation this morning with Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine Kava. Still to come, the presidential and ethics travails of the other Miami mayor, Francis Suarez. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez finally conceded he has no chance of winning the Republican nomination for president of the United States and folded up his campaign. Suarez's presidential candidacy was a long shot from the get-go, and there's been a lot of speculation that the mayor made his short-lived run in order to boost his political profile and his financial one. Well, according to a financial disclosure Suarez had to file with the Federal Election Commission this week, it looks like his financial profile has indeed improved plenty. As mayor of Miami, Suarez earns $130,000 a year. 
But the mayor's moonlighting, including a raft of consulting gigs, has helped him make as much as $13 million in the past 20 months. Suarez is already under state and federal ethics investigations for possible conflicts of interest, and these new revelations could add to that scrutiny. What do you think about Mayor Suarez's very lucrative side jobs? Are they kosher or do they compromise his public office? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio to discuss this now is WLRN's local government accountability reporter, Joshua Ceballos. How are you doing, Josh? Hanging in there, Tim. Thanks for having me. Me too. <laughs> Before we get started here, I just want to say we reached out to Mayor Suarez and his aides to join us as well, but they declined and directed us to the statement he issued after ending his presidential campaign this week. In it, Suarez says that he had, quote, looked forward to sharing the story of Miami, America's most successful city. I know what we have achieved during my tenure leading the city of Miami can be replicated in every community in our great country. So, Josh, like you and a lot of people, I'm struck by the claim that Miami is, quote, America's most successful city. Like Suarez's presidential bid, is that remark a product of admirable confidence or troubling delusion or something in between? You know, uh, Tim, I'm a big Joan Didion fan. I read Joan Didion. As am I. Yeah. <laughs> Joan Didion's Miami. And she described Miami as, as something like a mirage, right? And and uh, living in Miami is, is a state of cognitive dissonance. Right. Uh, right? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm born and raised here in, in Miami, and I see a lot of the things. And is Miami most America's most successful city? I, I don't think so. I mean, it, I think it depends on how you define success. And right now, I mean, a lot of people are struggling with, um, with rents and, and, and insurance prices and, um, climate change and, and the effects of flooding and all of these things. So, I mean, if you measure success that way, I don't know if you can say that, but in a lot of ways, I mean, Miami has seen a lot more business, a lot more population growth, people coming in, um, new industries, the tech industry is coming in. So in, in those ways, if you measure success that way, yeah. we are sort of very pretty and, and popular um, to a lot of people. And we're in the news now all of the time. So if that's your measure of success, for sure, we're doing great. Um, otherwise, I don't know. Well, I was born and raised in Indiana, so imagine how I feel <laughs> when I look at things here. Uh, well, well, let's look at some of the specifics, though. I mean, Suarez has lauded accomplishments like reducing the number of homeless people in Miami from 6,000 to 600. But... Does that really turn out to be a very accurate claim? No. So um, the Miami Herald, they did a fact check on that, and um, it wasn't very clear where he was getting those figures. So, I mean, the, the 6,000 figure the six uh, uh, of 6,000 homeless um, came from the Homeless Trust from like an old year. I believe it was 1992, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, under a subtotal. Yeah. The Homeless Trust reported 6,000 listed in 1992, um, which, you know, well before Suarez was in office. And um, the, the 600 figure is maybe people who were living counted on the streets right now. But there's, you know, hundreds more, thousands more who are living in homeless shelters throughout Miami. Yeah. Um, so it, it really didn't it seem like there was a lot of flash, not a lot of substance to that yeah. statement. Well, I mean, one of the big things he was running on also was his claim that he's brought big tech to Miami, that he's luring Silicon Valley to Silicon Beach, as it were. Does, does he deserve to make that claim, too? I mean... So there was de definitely a time a couple of years ago when he was when it was really popping off the tech scene 
um, yeah. in large part because of uh, because of Francis Suarez. I'll give him that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was interviewing people who were coming from Silicon Valley here, particularly to to do big tech with Latin Latin American firms. Yeah. Absolutely, I went to an event in in Wynwood one night uh, a couple of years ago. There was a, sort of a tech meetup, and a lot of the people there bringing their ideas, whether for good or for ill, were saying, "I'm uh, <laughs> I'm here because of Francis Suarez because of his how can I help tweet." So that absolutely that he brought people in at that time. But I think we've sort of seen a lot of those people leave now um, in, yeah. in recent years. Uh, they're, they're migrating out as the as the big tech dream has sort of dissipated. And as Bitcoin and um, crypto and NFTs and all of that has kind of fallen apart, these people have, have left um, a lot of them. So, yeah, well, what, sure. one way or another, though, I mean, you know, whether whether these claims are true or not. I mean, the fact remains, he's the mayor of a comparatively small city in, in, in the U.S. Um, remind us why Mayor Suarez closed his presidential campaign this week. Yeah, so um, basically, Francis, last week was the, I believe, the first Republican uh, debate um, headed by the RNC. And um, if you don't make the debate, it's it's kind of seen as a as a as a black eye on the campaign. You kind of yeah. need to be out there and and be seen by the voters. And he didn't qualify to make it, although he said that he did <laughs> initially. <laughs> initially, he did. Yeah. Initially, he said, yeah, I qualified. I'm going to be there on the debate stage and ran. You know, some places ran with that story. And it turned out that that wasn't true. The RNC had not. qualified. But he him. also had to live by his own uh proviso <laughs> right Right. i mean i think he said something if you don't make it to the campaign you might as well or quit to the debate to the debate i'm sorry you might yeah. as well drop out um yeah. and so yeah he didn't meet the requirements which i uh you needed to have to poll at least one percent in three high quality national polls yeah. or a mix of national polls um he didn't meet that requirement that just wasn't happening it wasn't happening he wasn't yeah. reaching the the one percent among the, the 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 people who were polled you also needed a, a minimum of forty thousand donors um, with 220 or more states, you need to prove that you have popularity around the country, not just in Florida, for instance. Yeah. And he didn't meet that requirement, although he tried very hard. Why then, if his candidacy never really had a chance to break through, why did he mount one in the first place? So like you said at the top of this, there's a lot of speculation about that. At mm -hmm. first, it, you know, people were wondering, is this just a ploy to increase his profile? Um, so that he can get his name at, on a wider stage, maybe maybe won't win the presidency. Maybe he could go for something else in Florida, some higher seat. But then, when the financial disclosure came out, when you know he dropped out after he had to do this financial disclosure, yeah. it, it was like, did he really think that he was going to win? It's not really clear. Yeah, let's let's get to that. I mean, as you just pointed out, before he dropped out of the presidential race, he was Suarez was required by the FEC to file a comprehensive financial disclosure, and there were some surprises there, not only in terms of a big, quick rise in his personal wealth, but also in the number of side jobs the mayor has. Right? Yeah, no, he's he's got a, a lot of gigs. I mean, good for him embracing the the gig economy. <laughs> I don't, I don't. <laughs> I don't have that much time on my hands, but yeah, he's got a lot of consulting jobs. Yeah, great work if he can get it. Kind of falls into, exactly. into that court. Let's let's look at some of these jobs. Um, you know, you, you've got a, a, a an international law firm called Quinn Emanuel that was paying him between one and five million dollars a year. Um, a, a a big um, uh, Coral Gables equity firm, Dagrosa, paying him three hundred sixty thousand dollars a year. Legacy Wealth Advisors, which consult very wealthy uh, people, uh, NF an NFT platform, uh, City National Bank, Redivider, a cryptocurrency, uh, mining, 
firm that was going to build, um, uh, I guess, a facility here in Homestead. Yeah, a mining facility in Homestead. A, a mining facility in Homestead. Now, when we say mining, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about digital, digital mining. Digital right? mining, yes. yes. No environmental concerns. Well, there. actually, Although there are. There are. You're right, because of the electricity. The, because, and the, the heat. The, power, the heat produced yeah, from the, that. That yeah. they use. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just a litany of, of all these, as we've called them, side gigs uh, that, that he was uh, taking on. Um, and all of this on top of the fact that even before this, we, we, you know, we knew previously, thanks to reporting earlier this year by the Miami Herald, that um, his consulting, he was doing consulting work with a real estate development company, Location Ventures, that was trying to cut through city red tape for some of its projects. And Mayor Suarez may have helped the developer, a gentleman named Rishi Kapoor, get some of the bureaucratic relief he was asking for, no? That's that's based, based on the Herald's reporting, that seems to be the case. That's currently under investigation, if I'm not mistaken, or part, part of the things that, are, that people are looking into yeah. um, is that, yeah, there, there were payments made by uh, Location Ventures to Francis Suarez um, involving getting some of their projects to go forward and, and, and having to deal with the bureaucratic red tape, like you said. Um, and they were able to, you know, they have several projects in, in the city of Miami and, and in Coral Gables as well um, that have been able to move forward. And they, and they were paying the mayor, you know, um, hundreds and thousands of dollars. Um, so it's it certainly has an air of uh, potential impropriety. Yeah, I mean, it, it prompted uh, both state and federal ethics investigations, as far as we know. Do we know where those investigations stand at the moment? So right now, I think we're still kind of in a holding position. Um, those those investigations have to do with other things as well, including some um, high profile gifts uh, that he was given, um, including box seats to uh, a race and to several sporting events and his trip to Qatar last year. Or, um, right. So yes. mm-hmm. um, there's the I think the common thread in all of these things that are being investigated is where is Francis Suarez getting his money? Um, and gifts, yeah. and uh, does that run afoul of his position as, as the mayor of Miami? Yeah. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Mayor Suarez's very lucrative moonlighting. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So let's look at the bigger picture here, Josh. Technically, legally, a lot of these side gigs are kosher. The mayor can take on this private employment as long as it doesn't conflict with his public duties and responsibilities. But do government watchdogs worry that when a mayor takes on this level of side jobs, when the personal wealth of someone like Suarez suddenly jumps to more than $3 million, at some point, does it start to cast a cloud over the office he holds? Does it begin to tarnish the optics of, of the office at all? I mean, I think optics is really the thing, right? Yeah. Uh, because if the, the, the reason that we have these laws about disclosures is because if um, uh, someone who holds public office is benefiting off of some company, some organization, some body that is also doing business with the city, and let's say that that person gets through the red tape and they get they get preferential treatment, then it, it definitely looks like there's something going on. And so in the case of Francis Suarez, I mean, it, it, you know, I think you have to, to say that he is a weak mayor, right? He doesn't have power to legislate. So I think he has time and opportunities to do a lot of side gigs. Yeah. Um, but if, if it interferes at all, if it looks like it's interfering, I'm sure some people would look at this and go, 
okay, like who is who is he serving? Like what is, what is this going towards? Is is he promoting crypto and then getting paid by crypto firms off of Although the we should mention that as big a crypto champion as he is, he really doesn't hold that much according no. to this, according to this disclosure that he filed. I don't yeah. know that he holds very much uh, Bitcoin at all based on this disclosure, which was interesting is because he was touting definitely touting Bitcoin yeah. um a couple years ago on on what was then Twitter and what's now X um and and all of these things but didn't didn't actually hold much of it at all and and then when it crashed you didn't really say much about that but if you're going to run for president and you have to file one of these disclosures wouldn't it have crossed his mind that hey maybe i'm kind of setting myself up so for some really heavy scrutiny here by taking on all these very very lucrative side gigs that may or may not be kosher vis-a-vis -vis my position as the mayor of miami I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for Francis Suarez, but I perhaps I mean, what he's what he said in the past is that his his work does not conflict with what he does with the city. Um, you know, uh, I mean, just I can tell you from watching the city commission meetings, he's not often there in the in the past couple of years. Um, it's he mainly leaves it to the five city commissioners. He has uh, just veto power. So I don't see where what business he was doing with them in front of the dais, but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Well, let's, and this brings us to my final question then, and it's something that you just brought up earlier. Does this also perhaps raise the argument to make the mayor of Miami a stronger position? I mean, right now the Miami charter makes the mayor very weak. I mean, he has veto power, but doesn't do a whole heck of a lot else. If the city gave the mayor more to do and more power to do it with, would there maybe be less temptation to go out and be a consultant for real estate and cryptocurrency firms? I mean, Tim, you and I were talking about Miami at the top of this. I don't know if there's any less temptation to do anything else. You know, I think mayors with lots of power also do a lot of things on the side. Um, so, you know, I can't I can't really say, but um, I think, it, yeah, it definitely stands to, I think in the past, Francis did want to increase the power of the mayoral position mm -hmm. um, and wanted to be able to do more. And right now, because basically what his job is, is as a or what he's turned it into is a spokesman for the city, in, in which mm -hmm. case you could say that he's done that very well. Um, but, yeah, all of these little side things with people who are doing business with the city specifically, like location ventures, th that should bring some scrutiny. And that should, I think, raise a few eyebrows. The cognitive cognitive dissonance continues. Yes. And the, and the mirage of Miami. <laughs> Josh Ceballos is WLRN's local government accountability reporter. Thanks much as always, Josh. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. Still to come, when will the international community finally step in to rescue Haiti from gang rule? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Like mass shootings in the U.S., we've become sadly inured to massacres committed by gangs in Haiti. But it was hard to ignore the slaughter that occurred there last Saturday. Heavily armed gunmen in the Port-au-Prince suburb of Canaan murdered more than 20 people, including children, who were demonstrating against gang control of that community. Also troubling was the fact that a local pastor reportedly sent the marchers out not just to protest the gangs, but to attack them, vigilante style. But perhaps just as disturbing is the international community's inability, if not unwillingness, to come up with a workable plan of intervention to help Haiti's overwhelmed national police overcome gang rule in that country. We're learning now that one strategy that was in the works may not now be as promising as we thought. 
In the meantime, Haitians keep desperately migrating to the U.S., especially South Florida. What are your thoughts about a solution to Haiti's nightmare? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. In the studio now, we're fortunate to have the best journalist covering Haiti, Jacqueline Charles of our news partner, the Miami Herald. Jackie, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Unfortunately, we need to start our conversation with another atrocity. Um, as I mentioned, last Saturday, a group of church parishioners uh, from an evangelical congregation were sent out to march to protest against gang rule in communities like the suburb of Canaan. And they were met by gunmen who are with the gang that I guess is called the Taliban, a new one to me, run by a gang leader um, who calls himself General Jeff. Um, what, what do we, uh, the, the videos that you and I have both looked at uh, this are, are just stomach turning. What do we know though about what led to this, this massacre? Well, you know, there are a couple of versions. Um, one, we are now hearing from the Haitian National Police. The director finally said something two days after this massacre that there was a confrontation. He says that there were armed individuals who were wearing olive green uniforms who were marching alongside the church followers. Now, I, I should just point out, and you tell me if I'm wrong, in the videos I saw, though, I didn't see the sticks and machetes that some of the parishioners said they were told to take out on that march by this pastor, Pastor Marco. Yes, but the but parishioners, did, they did have, you know, sticks. Okay. They had forks. They had, right. you know, basically this pastor told them, you're not going to be shot. You're not going to be killed. Um, this was talked about days in advance, you know, in Haiti before this march happened. Yeah. Um, the police themselves said that they actually deployed officials to go and talk to him and said that this is not the thing that you do. You should not take your parishioners on a march. Um, we have asked the police, then why didn't you stop it? You know, they've referred right. to this as spontaneous, but how can something be spontaneous well, when you and, knew about and it? And especially since for months now, we've been going through what's known as the Boacale movement, the vigilante movement in Haiti against gangs. So you would have thought that this was a recipe for disaster. Well, those of us who are watching it saw that it was a recipe for disaster knowing where they were going. But I think also because there had been some successes, quote unquote, in this Boacale movement, um, according to the UN, there have been 350 people who have been lynched. Um, over 300 of them are suspected gang members. Right. At least one was a police officer. So I think, you know, in on one hand, you had people who, yeah, they believed that they were going to do something. But this area, kind of, let's just talk about it for a minute. It's mm -hmm. on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince. Right. It was a settlement that was created after the January 12, 2010 Yeah, you, you and I both yes. watched the development of this, this dusty mountain valley out there become a community exactly. at, in the months after the earthquake. More right. than 300,000 people. And this gang has attacked the woman's prison nearby. They've carried out massacres in the town nearby. So the fact that this pastor thought that he could lead a couple hundred of his worshipers there to confront a gang yeah. it's, it's stunning so basically they marched into the community and the gang leader jeff 
um, he spoke before the police spoke. He said that he told his gang members to shoot in the air. But what happened was that there were gunshots that was coming from the marchers. And then that's when his gang members fired back and people mm-hmm. were killed. The police are also saying that there were armed individuals, but we, we haven't seen those photos or anything. What we do know today is that there are several people who, um, who have been killed. You said 20, I've heard 30, I've heard we've counted yeah. seven. Nobody can tell you. And police have not been able to go in into Kana'a and retrieve those bodies. Right, I mean, human rights groups like the Network for the Defense of Human Rights and it told me this week it could be well above 20, 30, um, they're they're still they're still trying to figure that out, but this just adds to the atrocity level in Haiti. I mean, the gangs are responsible for almost twenty five hundred murders of Haitians this year. Um, you know, every time you and I sit down <laughs> here to talk, we, we we sort of feel like it can't get worse, but it just does. Um, keep getting worse. Where, where, where do things go from here? I mean, right now, as we speak, I've just learned that a very well-respected and famous Haitian writer had his house set on fire. Um, he had to run out and this happened after he went on the radio basically talking about the silence of the government in what was happening in Kafufe, that people are being forced out at least 5,000 according to the UN, 20,000 according to some human rights, you know, activists, people's homes um, have been completely taken away, burned down, people are being decapitalized, they're losing their businesses. Uh, the U.S. Embassy we saw are telling Americans, Americans to, to get out. To, to stay out of the country and get out yeah, yeah. of the country. And, and, and this there's the irony there of the State Department telling Americans to stay out of Haiti, and yet the Biden administration, as you reported this week, is deporting Haitians back to that situation. We were just talking about cognitive dissonance in, in the earlier segment here. I, yeah. That seems like a pretty good example there. Yes, I mean, the U.S. Embassy itself is under fire. I mean, where they are, the gangs have been shooting. Um, they've sent out almost like shelter-in-place orders for their you know, for their employees. Uh, you, you, if you need a visa, forget about it because that has basically been shut down. And so you have a situation today where Port-au-Prince is turning into a war zone, and every day you have gangs that are taking over neighborhoods and when you talk to people, what they tell you is that they are afraid that they're going to completely lose this capital, that it's going to be completely overwritten by gangs. Yeah. So in terms of solutions, we had been thinking in previous weeks that this offer on the part of Kenya to lead an international police assistance mission. And and we were, but yet we were still waiting for a formal uh, you know announcement from the U.N. and the United States and the international community to go ahead with this. We're learning, thanks to your reporting last week, that this wasn't really going to turn out to be what we had thought. Well, you know, when we look at the language that the State Department have been using, and then the Kenyans, they arrive in Haiti, uh, they stay in U.S. Embassy housing, they don't go around Port-au-Prince to actually see the capital that they're going to be securing. They stay, they have their meetings at a hotel next to the airport, airport just in case yeah. they have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then the conversations turn to a static force. Well, you know, we're going to... Now, when you say static force, we're talking about a, 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 the gendarme just sort of going out there to protect infrastructure. The airport, the seaport, yeah. the police academy. Ministry buildings, yeah. Exactly. 
exactly. Yeah. So this is what created panic and it created a reaction that I think that Washington wasn't necessarily expecting. They thought that they were going to get pushed back on the idea of a foreign intervention. But when people said, if you're going to come, you need to come and help our police fight. You don't need to come and play security right. guard. I mean, there, there was the, the, the feeling amongst Haitians that this finally the cavalry was arriving and, and then they're being told that, no, they're just going to, you know, uh, protect the, the finance ministry building. And uh, I think that Washington is now understanding what Haitians need and they're looking at the situation. The police director said that they expressed to the Kenyans what they needed. They are waiting to see what the Kenyans get back to them. The devil is in the details. We have to wait to see what the mandate from the UN Security Council is going to say. Mm -hmm. We have to see whether China and Russia will veto that mandate. We also have to see how this is going to be paid for. But I will also tell you that there are individuals in the international community who are saying that this This cannot be your standard military operation. You go in and you help the police, but at the same time, there needs to be an investment on the ground in programs in these slums because you kill one gang leader, you've got 10, 20 kids behind him. No, as we've seen in in countries like Mexico, I I can attest to that. But wasn't some of the reasoning behind this, though, in terms of just having the Kenyan and international police guard infrastructure, the thinking behind that being that, that that would free up Haitian police officers then to go actually confront the gangs. Yes, but you only have 3,300 Haitian police exactly. officers on public safety duty in the country at any given time, and not all of them are involved in gang operations. And the HMP cannot run two huge gang operations at the same time. The challenge in the U.S. has said it. They will go in, take control of an area, but they can't hold control of that area because they don't have the bodies. Right. So a, a, a much... A, a, a much larger show of force needs to be conjured. Yes, and they have to figure out how do you help the Haitian National Police without supplanting it and at the same time, you know, being of benefit to them. And then how do you stop the bleed? Haiti has already lost nearly a thousand police officers just this year alone, many of them coming to the United States on a humanitarian parole program. So our own domestic policy is being counteractive to our foreign policy because we're saying we want to help, but at the same time, we're becoming a pull factor. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the worsening gang rule crisis in Haiti and what to do about it. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Which brings us then, Jackie, to, to the question, why is it so hard for the U.S. and international community to come up with a plan to send some sort of genuine force into Haiti to neutralize the gangs. I mean, is it is it harder because, as you were alluding to earlier, fears of repeating the mistakes and abuses of past international interventions in Haiti? Definitely. This mm-hmm. issue is a very touchy issue, depending on how you phrase it and the words that you use. There are still people who are opposed to it. Uh, Haitians who are opposed to the idea of foreign intervention, you said, okay, well, what's the solution? What a police force of 3,300? Yeah, that's become my big question. If not this, then what? Yes. Yeah. And you hear that you hear the U.S. say we need a political agreement because the politics is, are dysfunctional. There's not one elected leader. But what we're seeing is increasingly, yes, there needs to be a political agreement on governance. Right. But the reality is, too, is that the gangs are not being controlled by political actors anymore. They are increasingly, you know, independent 
yeah. of, of everything. So they are going out, they're kidnapping because they're not getting income any other way. What we're watching in this neighborhood of Kafufe is that they want to create a route for kidnapping victims so that they can take their victims because the police cut off one of their access. So, you know, how do you deal with this? And at the same time, you know, yes, they're committing horrible atrocities, but what has fed into this? People who go into Haiti and they look at the huge inequality, you know, and, and you talk to just individual members who have been living in these ghettos and be basically feeling completely shut out of society. How do you reintegrate individuals after, you know, after this? So I think, but the international community, definitely on the U.S., because of the criticism that they've received on the uh, presently and in the past, um, they are they're almost paralyzed, but the reality is, is that something needs to be done and those who oppose it, then what is the solution? Yeah. And if not the Kenya plan, if the Kenya plan falls through and it, it, am I correct in thinking that that's likely? No, I think okay. that I, right. I, I think that, hear that I then. think okay. as a result of my story at the Miami Herald that <laughs> there are people in Washington and New York that are really rethinking this as well as the Haitians also express um, to them that, listen, this is not going to work. We don't need you to come in and, 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 and do static, you know, a static yeah. force that may have been, you know, the issue when barbecue, the gang leader was controlling the fuel terminal. Right. But Jim, today, yeah, yeah, but today the gangs control all of these other areas and you still need to go into these gang control areas. So the, the challenge that they're working on right now is to figure out how do you send a force into this country to help the police and to neutralize the gangs. And while people are saying Kenya, Kenya's the only country that raised your hands. Yeah, which is astonishing, really. And, and when you say help the police, we're talking about fighting alongside yes. the police against these gangs. Yes. I actively. Mean, actively. Yeah. And everyone tells you when I talk to them, they tell you the Haitian police are very well trained, but they don't have the, the equipment. They don't have the guns. I've talked to police officers, seeing them, you know, guarding and they don't even have bulletproof vests. Jacqueline Charles covers Haiti and the Caribbean for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Jackie, thanks as always. Thank you. Finally on the roundup, we may be able to see the legendary Lionel Messi and our Major League Soccer team, Inter-Miami, score goals like this one in Miami sooner than we think. <laughs> Thanks to ESPN Deportes for that great call, by the way. Inter-Miami CF has announced that construction on its 131-acre stadium complex development in Miami, Miami Freedom Park, has started and is set to open in 2025. But Messi's contract with Inter-Miami CF is up in December of that year. So if construction doesn't progress on what we jokingly call Miami time here, then fans may be able to cheer him on at the future Inter-Miami CF Stadium right across from Miami International Airport. For years now, the Herons, as Inter-Miami is known, have played and trained at Drive Pink Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. The Miami Freedom Park project will include a stadium for the team, a 58-acre public park, and an entertainment district on the grounds of the former Melrose Country Club. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. 
Gracias. Messi. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.